Greetings, friends and fellow companions, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Dragonlance Canticle. Having returned from five years searching for the ancient lost gods, my name is Megan. And with me today, I have a very special guest to talk about a very special product. My guest today is Mr. Tim Shiflett of the Dragonlance Nexus. Tim, please say hello to our listeners and tell us a little bit about yourself, whatever you'd like to say, and a little bit about your relationship uh, to the wide, wonderful world of Dragonlance. Indeed, in general. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Tim Shiflett. Hi. Um, yeah, I uh, began uh, my journey in Dragonlance when I was 11, I want to say. And yeah, it's uh, I got a copy of Dragons of Autumn Twilight, and uh, then... <laughs> <laughs> I got my uh, my cousin Robert actually passed down to me his uh, his old uh, basic like the you know the old Moldvay Cook basic expert D and D boxes. Uh, I got those passed hand me down from him when he got the advanced D and D first edition books. Oh la di da. Yeah, I know. And that Robert thinks he's so big, <laughs> right? He's like, I don't need these basic edition stuff anymore. Uh, but yeah, he uh, he passed that down to me, and I ran my first Dragonlance game with that. Uh, and nice. I haven't looked back since. Yeah. Um, and tell us about your sort of role within the Nexus. What do you What do you do? What are we here to talk about? Uh, I write crap. That's what I do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we have a, a a very creative uh, team at the Dragonlance Nexus uh, with a with a lot of talented writers, um, artists, and uh, you know digital like graphic design. I don't know what do you call them. Uh, Lay- layout Ed, artist. Layout artists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or well, that's that's Ed's job. Is he's mm-hmm. he's incredibly talented layout artist. So um, yeah, that's. Uh, but my role specifically is really just uh, just writing, and uh, I'm an English teacher, so I get uh, kind of saddled with with some of the heavy editing. Uh, as far as syntax and grammar and that sort of thing goes, which please don't judge me. I know <laughs> mistakes happen <laughs> all the time. So, but that's what I do mostly is I, I'm responsible for kind of coming up with ideas and uh, executing them. Nice. And so let's talk about your, uh, to date, your personal magnum opus, perhaps. The yeah. Dragonlance. The Dragonlance Autumn Twilight 5e conversion guide. Do you think that right. Because I would say conversion guide. It is a little bit more than that, but um, it's got it ha- all kinds of extra little features. But yeah, we part. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Um, no, we uh, we try to to add a little uh, value to every product we put out, whether it's subclasses or uh, new ancestries or anything like that we we try to add um something special to every product Mm -hmm. so why don't you tell the audience um so anybody who's following us on facebook um in our dragonlance nexus group or following us on twitter at dl nexus has probably seen the announcements they've probably seen the fantastic incredible amazing cover art that elena zambelli did for us it isn't um, it great. It is. It's oh, I'm, I, it's one of those, like, I just like stare at it when I mm-hmm. see it. That's how yeah. great it is. It's so beautiful. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and it just like completely captures the spirit of that moment. I just love it. Yeah. Um, but why don't you, um, 
tell us just sort of in, in general, give us sort of a, a snapshot overview of what this book is for those who don't know it. Okay. Well, I um, Autumn Twilight is a, at its core, it is a conversion guide and uh, a DM's kind of advice uh, book on how to run um, that those first uh, four slash five modules of uh, the original Dragonlance campaign that that kicked off uh, what we know as Dragonlance today. So it's the classic uh, War of the Lance campaign, starting in Solace and moving through Zaxeroth and Qualanesti, Paxtarkis, uh, Skullcap, and ultimately Thorbarden. Um, and and that's. Uh, and essentially, it converts every single mechanic, monster, NPC, uh, creature, uh, dice roll. Every dice roll that you make in in the thing has a has a conversion into uh, fifth edition mechanics. Um, and to be just to let the audience know, um, in case they are interested, hopefully, in picking up a copy of Autumn Twilight, what do you need in addition? Um, to to this book because you know the DMs Guild has certain rules about what you can put into their products or put into our products and what you can't. So what do you need in addition to this book to run the adventure? Sure. If I could, I would have completely rewritten the the entire uh, campaign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from scratch, but uh, you can't do that because it's already a, a published product. But um, so what you it does assume that you have a copy of. Um, DL one through five. Um, just to be clear, DL five is a is source material and not really part of the adventure. Um, you'll see when you get it; it's uh, mostly um, background and history, and it talks about the gods and uh, it gives first edition statistics for uh, it, the player characters: Tannis, Sturm, Riverwind, Goldman, all of those guys. Um, so I included that a uh, fifth edition conversion of those characters in there, but DO five. But so, but basically, we we assume that you have uh, dragons of despair, uh, dragons of fire, dragon or flame, dragons of hope, and dragons of desolation. Um, in addition to a monster manual, player's handbook, DMG, that sort of thing. Um, I think there's a couple of references to uh, Morden Kanan's Monsters of the Multiverse, which will be handy. Uh, since that's kind of like an all-inclusive uh, thing now, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Um, outs. I mean, if you're playing D and D, you fifth edition, you probably already have the DMG and player's handbook and all that. So, uh, really, it just assumes that you have a copy, whether through PDF from DMs Guild or a physical copy of uh, the first edition modules. Um, where does the where does the adventure start? So we're we're used to adventures starting, you know, first level. Some people like to start their mm -hmm. adventures at third level, but this one is a little bit different. So um, I I took a note from the third edition uh, publication that Margaret Weiss Productions did of of this campaign um, in their book Dragons of Autumn. You start at uh, fifth level, and I. When when I first started running this campaign in fifth edition, I just did that because that's what I did in third edition, and and so that's that's uh, what I assume the characters are starting off at is at, is at fifth fifth level, um, and by the end of uh, 
Dragons of Desolation uh, characters should be ninth level. Okay, so levels. So it's about one level per chapter that, per per module. Mm-hmm. I've always, I mean, even back when I ran it first edition, I always uh, did a milestone. I didn't know that's what it was called back then, but that's what I did. Was I always uh, ran it as milestone advancement rather than uh, giving everybody experience points along the way. Um, what would you say, roughly speaking, as, as someone who is personally myself interested in running this adventure mm-hmm. um, for fifth edition, what, how long do you think this would take, roughly speaking? I know it's different for every group. Sure. I, how many sessions do you envision this whole thing taking? So um, often, I, I would say if we were, we're talking about like an average of three to four hour sessions, um, I would say you could get through the whole thing about seven or eight sessions i want to say if you're really booking it but um obviously that doesn't account for role playing and you know diversions and like it's so funny very rarely do i have i was just talking about that i actually just uh i'm running it i'm uh for i run a dnd club at the high school that i teach at um and i'm running this campaign right now in fifth edition for some club kids and um they love to role play and uh very very rarely do the the characters like for instance when they go they go to zach saroth and they recover the discs of mystical and they go back to solace um it's very rare that i have a group of players whenever i'm completely hands-off that actually get captured into the slave caravan they're usually like running like guerrilla tactics off in you know off to the side somewhere <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to rescue guilt anyway so di- without diversion i've had it uh wrapped up in about eight sessions um okay but you know it mileage varies mm-hmm. um what was the what was the genesis behind this project? I mean, I, I imagine if you're running it, it, it sounds like you've already been running it in fifth edition, you know, for your own for your own table and and your group at at your school. But sure. what what sort of sparked the idea of like, hey, let's do this as a project for the Dragonlance Nexus, and and Tim's the one to do it. Well, because I had already basically written it. Uh, these are I. The start of this, these are my campaign journal notes, my con- my own personal conversion notes. Um, but yeah, I, I'm literally every edition of D&D, except fourth, I, I never quite uh, caught on to the fourth edition thing, but um, I've run literally every RPG system that I've ever played, I've converted Dragonlands to and tried to run this thing. It's my favorite. It's my, it's my origin to the, to the world itself uh, is this campaign. And so um, it's it's my default brain space whenever I'm looking at a new system or a new edition of d and I'm like, how do I do Dragonlance with this? And so um, when fifth edition came out, uh, it was I was like, okay, next time I ran uh, this campaign, I just started making notes and I started converting over monster statistics and you know, and a lot of it was really just as simple as, uh, K-Pack Draconian uh, plus five to hit this damage. Oh, and there's acid, you know, or something like that, uh, or poison rather. And um, I would just, I would just jot down little things. And over time, uh, I've run it in fifth edition maybe 
five times already. Uh, and this is currently my sixth playthrough. Um, oh my goodness. Every time I, uh, I do it, I, um, I, I just I make little notes and I do things here and there. And I originally had decided uh, way back when, um, several years ago, that I would submit it to the Nexus as a free product. Um, because, but it was very rough. It's nothing like the the beautiful layout that you see now. But mm-hmm. um, it was really just a, a campaign journal, essentially. And uh, I started the process of converting it over. And um, the guys were like, "Well, hey, now that uh, the you know the DMs Guild is opening Dragonlance submissions, uh, why don't we?" I don't know. Why don't we polish this up and put it out as a product? And so that's what we did. Say is, what is the process of converting one e to five e like? Like, what is, what are some of the pitfalls that you run into, or what is some of the advice that you might give to somebody who's doing their own one e to five e conversion? Not just for this, but in general. Something that um, was pointed out to me that I I think I did it intuitively at first but then when i was actually putting this together on paper uh one is a lot more forgiving balance wise uh it's it's a lot harder to to unbalance an encounter in 5e i think uh the players uh, um what do you call it uh, the the player's power level and the monster's power level in 1e um they're closer together and um having you know 10 goblins versus five for you know a group of characters at whatever level um it doesn't make that big of a difference in 1e whereas in 5e it's balances is kind of a trickier uh slope so whenever the the module let's say um the guys are going through and uh, you have the the draconians with the cart at the beginning, you know, and mm-hmm. they're looking for the staff of Michigal. And uh, there's some other uh, draconians up in a tree. And at some point, you could be fighting like up to 13 draconians at a time. And a party of four fifth level adventurers, that's just, it just way upsets the balance. Whereas in uh, first edition, it, it's not that big of a problem. So that's you you can't do just a one to one conversion as far as the number of monsters encountered. Um, mm-hmm. you have to you have to really pay attention to, you know, as much as challenge rating is broken, you know, you have to kind of use that as your guidepost in fifth edition. I would say that's the biggest hurdle. Mm-hmm. So um, you had mentioned one thing I wanted just to step back step backwards because i meant to ask this a, a, a few minutes ago and i and and i and i forgot but just okay. to just out of curiosity you talked about running this adventure so many times have you ever played in this adventure are you always the dm i have never played it no <laughs> <laughs> i've never been able to play as a character in fact that's why uh i have done it so many times i think is because i've always wanted to be a player in the campaign uh-huh. And uh, none of my friends, my all of my friends were Forgotten Realms people. Um, and I was the only Dragonlance guy. And so if I wanted to play in Dragonlance, I had to run the game. Well, I plan on running 
this adventure in the new year and you can play in my game. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Even if I know all of the nooks and crannies of it, you don't yeah. care. <laughs> no, of course not. All right. Um, that sort of leads into another question I wanted to ask, which is this book presents, um, presents full sort of character descriptions along with um, uh, stats for the, the heroes of the Lance as they appear in the Autumn Twilight adventures, the Autumn Twilight novel too, mm -hmm. um, which was, I have to say that that whole section of the book, that was really a lot of fun to read. Oh, cool. Um, just to read like the descriptions for these characters. Like, I feel like you did such a great job Thank in you. a few paragraphs, really conveying the spirit of who they are and how they behave and sort of what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. Um, so that was, that was just a lot of fun to read. You really, I mean, I, if I was ever to, to, to run this campaign using the pre-generated characters, I'd feel very comfortable giving the, the, my players these descriptions and being like, here, this is how the character exists. This is sort of your baseline to start from. Because I feel like it, it, it is very clear and very evocative of who that person is. And you clearly have a very deep understanding of the characters. So that part oh, was thank you. fantastic to read. Um, and I wanted to know, uh, well, it's not really a question so much as just sort of a, an open door for discussion, but how do you feel about playing this campaign or running this campaign from either perspective as a original character or as one of the pre-generated characters? Because I can tell you, I've never run this adventure, uh -huh. um, but I have played in it and I played as Goldmoon in my adventure. Lovely, um, yeah. So do you, what do you think are, what's the, in your mind, what is the pros and cons of doing one versus the other, either in terms of running it or um, getting, or, or sort of advice for DMs who, well, we'll say advice for DMs who are trying to decide whether they want to do it one way or the other. Um, and if there's any uh, potential players listening right now, um, how to sort of get them on board with one idea versus the other. Sure. Uh, so this is really and uh, depends on the group. Um, I find that the pregens are useful if if you're introducing Dungeons and Dragons to a fresh set of of players. Um, the pregens are uh, honestly like I, I personally dislike. Uh, in my games using the pre-generated characters. It's a personal preference. I know some people really uh, want to take those characters from the novels and fill their shoes and, and have their adventures as them. Um, and and that's, that's wonderful. It's certainly valid. It's the way it was originally intended. Um, but I have, I, I've done that and it's, it's, I find that as as a guy who has read the novels and and uh, enjoys them quite a lot, that uh, the a person in the role of say Raceland, for instance, or Caraman, uh, it's 
<laughs> it irks me when they get something wrong. <laughs> like uh, Caravan <laughs> wouldn't do that. No, it, but it's, I mean, it's a minor thing. Uh, but I do think they're useful for, like I said, brand new players, introducing them to Dungeons and Dragons and the rules of Dungeons and Dragons for the first time. Um, with, uh, for, for experienced players, I have yet to find a group of experienced players who are okay with the pre-generated characters. They, players tend to want to be creative and create their own individual characters. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, we just go with that, uh, typically when, when I run it. My experience of playing in it as a character was it was it was an interesting experience because um you know I'd always liked Gold Moon as a character, mm -hmm. but playing as her, I feel like I came to really appreciate her a lot more as a character to the point where I'd say she's probably like probably now one of my top favorite characters, just having sort of inhabited her. Um, mm -hmm. I found though that the Maybe the downside of it, and I was relatively new to 5e at this time when I played it, but I feel like the, the downside of it is I found myself making the choices, uh, sort of the, the opposite of what you said when you said Caramon wouldn't do that. I uh -huh. was doing everything sort of like, I was making all the same decisions for Gold Moon that she made in the novel mm. um, and being like, well, that's what she did in the book, so that's what I'm going to do now. That's a pitfall um, for Dungeon Masters too. Yeah. Um, when you're running this sort of campaign that has fiction attached to it already, um, you you have in your mind's eye this this linear kind of progression of events, and I and I caution dungeon masters very strongly to take a step back from the fiction and kind of let uh, players make you know just run with the players' decisions and and be prepared to to improvise quite a bit because a lot of times players won't make the the same decisions that Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman had those characters make. So, yeah, but I'm glad. Yeah, it seems like uh, if because you were familiar with the material that you really wanted to to immerse yourself in the character of Goldman. And I think that's valid. Yeah. And then I found myself being really annoyed that she it's like, well, my whole purpose in life is to find the discs of Mishakal and then give them to someone else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I am an incredibly strong and independent woman. Here, you take these. <laughs> I was like, why can't I them. just I was like, why can't I just keep them? Why can't I be the chosen leader? Right. <laughs> I had the same thought. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess there was my my DM at the time was hewing pretty close to the um, not to the novels, but to the story presented in the adventures. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt that was kind of like a, a downside of the experience for me that I couldn't, that, that, you know, on the one hand, I was making the same decisions Gold Moon made in the adventure and made in the novels, but also if I wanted to deviate, I felt like I was kind of fixed, you know? I, yes. Uh -huh. I couldn't. I couldn't have Gold Moon just be like, "No, I'm not giving these up. I'm the one who found them. I was the one that was chosen. Right. I'm, I'm the princess of the Kwaishu. I can be a leader." Mm -hmm. um, and it was just like, "No, can't do that. It's got to be Elastan because that's what happens." Yeah. Um. I. It's funny. The game I'm running right now. One of the the characters. Um. 
I ran Gold Moon and Riverwind as NPCs. Uh, they all of the player characters, uh, all of the players made original characters, and I haven't. Uh, she's playing a, a water genasi uh, bard of eloquence, and at the end of uh, DL one, uh, when when they've recovered, they've defeated uh, the black dragon and recovered the discs, she converts to um, to the Church of Mishical. And become you know takes a level of cleric uh, mm-hmm. at the end of that, and so I'm and she's now Goldmoon and Riverwind have gone. I've I've separated them from the group now that we have a cleric in the party, and uh, they're off doing things, trying to rebuild Kweshu and all of that. Uh, and now this cleric is carrying the discs of Mystical, and so I'm I'm toying with the idea of of having. Elliston not be a character in the story, but we'll see. We'll he could see even be—he could even be more like um, like an advisor, uh, like a yeah, mentor like a, character, yeah, yeah, or like a, a political leader, like in the in in the the good sense of the word, political leader. Like, mm-hmm. uh, um, well, he's he's on the Council of Freedom in Dragons of Hope in DL three. He's part of the right. the council that makes the decisions for the refugees, and so. I'm going to have him be there, but she's also, but like I said, she's playing a college of eloquence bard. And so she's really good at that sort of thing too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um. So that's good. I was going to ask, a, I was going to ask next about, you know, is it, is it better to follow the story of the novels or to create your own story? But I mean, we've sort of already gone over oh. that. And I think that we're, uh, I think that you and I are both in agreement um, Dragonlance is such a rich and varied world, and I think if you are, if you're just sticking to the the linear uh, thing, you first of all, one of the big criticisms of this campaign is that it's on a set of rails that really doesn't let up from beginning to end, and I I think it's because of the mentality that you have to play by what the fiction that's already come out. And and if you, but if you take a step back and you really open your senses up to the possibilities and randomness of of a sandbox setting, where uh, you know the players can decide, hey, we're not going south. We're going to try and take the Dis of Mystical to Palanthus. Like if you have a a Knight of Slamnia in the party, the Knight of Slamnia will want to take the Dis of Mystical to maybe Sancrist and. Uh, you know, that sort of thing. And you just roll with it and, and allow that to happen. I don't, I think, I, I think you do yourself a disservice and you really limit the creativity and the experience of playing Dungeons and Dragons when you do that. Um, so the next sort of topic that I wanted to to go into is one that's been on my mind a lot lately because I've been running two different groups through um, Shadow of the Dragon Queen. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've been wanting to run this War of the Lance campaign. And I've just basically been waiting for this book to come out. Um, And now that it's out, I'm going to wait until the new year. But um, I'm, I'm going back and forth in my mind about whether, whether it is best to, Okay, so where do I strike the balance between the 
the the flavor of Dragonlance and sort of what we understand about Dragonlance in terms of available classes, uh, in terms of the subclasses that make sense within the setting, um, in terms of the ancestries that exist there, um, versus the sort of grab bag 5e style letting anybody play any kind of creature. And I honestly, I go back and forth. Sometimes I think there is this... Um, sometimes I think to myself, well... Maybe it's best that I think of Dragonlance as like I'm designing um, an Apple computer where <laughs> I want to maximize the user's experience by limiting what they can do, you know? Right, like, yeah. Give them, like, design, design everything to be the best I can and then give them the best and say, here's the best, go with that. Yeah. Or, or do I want to do like, you know, the windows, like everybody gets to design their own thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see, I can see reasons for doing it both ways. Um, I, I can see in, in one sense that, you know, the, your, your players might want to make all these weird characters, but if they don't know Dragonlance and they don't know the sort of, they, they don't get that experience of playing a character in a world that is built for that kind of character. Sure. Um, I, uh, versus just I will, letting them be the water Genasi bard. Yeah, well, I don't have a problem with a lot. I, I think we, we as Dragonlance fans, we run into the same problem we were talking about before when we're talking about, you know, using or, or sticking to the fiction, is that um, if the only reason why water Genasi hasn't shown up in Dragonlance yet is because an author hasn't come up with an idea that uses a water genasi. If if the storyteller wants a story that has a weird tiefling character or a um, oh gosh, what's another example? An Asmar, right? I'm if if they want if the storyteller wants those elements in their story, they're going to figure out a way that they fit. And, and just because the story hasn't been told yet doesn't mean it's not there. Um, you know, Dragonlance exists within, you know, the four, you know, the inner planes or, or you know, the the um, elemental planes are, are there. So you have, it is exposed that there are genies in actual Dragonlance products that I've seen. And so it only makes sense that a Genasi is possible. Um, there is an abyss and in the abyss, there are demons. So it only makes sense that um, a tiefling is possible. There are celestial. So Asimar are, are possible. So it's, uh, I think we, we hurt ourselves if we say, if an author hasn't already put it in there before me, then it must not exist for Dragonlance. And I, I think that limits the fun for players. Now, I will say that there, Dragonlance has a flavor, but I don't think a character's race or ancestry is necessarily part of that. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't allow orcs or half-orcs in my campaign because, and, I mean, unless a player really wants to, mm -hmm. to play one. I will tell them, hey, there are no orcs in this setting. I really want to play an orc barbarian. I'm like, okay, how did you get here? And and so we'll we'll workshop, you know, 
ideas on on how an orc ended up in this place but um i don't i've never had that problem uh before to be honest it's uh, i think once you say hey there aren't orcs in in dragonlance and also the dragonborn for this campaign is off the table uh because of reasons Mm-hmm. Um, because there aren't dragons in this setting, I say at the beginning, you know, <laughs> and they're like, what? Isn't this Dungeons and Dragons? Anyway. Um, and, and players are like, oh, okay. And they just pick something else. But those mm-hmm. are really my only restrictions. Um, I think the, the flavor and, and feel of Dragonlance comes from other things. I think it comes from the relationship of, of mortals with the gods and, the the nation states and the regions and the environment itself i don't think it comes from i think it has very little to do with ancestry and that that's just my personal opinion how about like subclasses like let if somebody's wanting to play um i don't know like a clockwork soul sorcerer well i guess clockwork soul sorcerer that could be like a gnome but mm-hmm. um I don't know, like a Horizon Walker Ranger, like a ranger that travels to all these different planes, or like, mm. um, um, I don't know. There's just nothing springing to mind right now. Now that I'm on the spot, but you know, there, there's a lot of subclasses that I feel don't quote unquote fit in Dragonlance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, how do you? I mean, are you? Would you say just you know same thing? Just find a way to make it work. Yeah, I, I do think that. Um, the classes and subclasses that are officially published are all officially published for the Forgotten Realms, but the I, I don't think that you are tied to like there are mechanics, and then there is text written about around those mechanics to give it flavor, right? So I can take the mechanics of a Horizon Walker Ranger and. Uh, re kind of flavor it to something to to mean something else. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are a Horizon, if you want to play a Horizon Walker Ranger, maybe you are from the Forgotten Realms, and you, you when in your travels you ended up here for one reason or another, um, and that's that's perfectly valid. I I do agree with you that since they're flavored toward the Forgotten Realms, I. I don't necessarily think every subclass fits. I I know as a when I play, uh, I typically say, "What are we playing?" and you know, give me a general kind of uh, give me give me an overarching kind of description of what we're doing and where we're supposed to go with this. And um, and I get that from the DM, and I use that to see you know what fits in this particular type of campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, but that's me. I, I, I would hope or assume that, that most players do that rather than say, I'm playing a game. I want to play this character. I need to find any old game that'll take me one with this character. Um, yeah, I do. I do like to merge the, the, the feelings of, of the, of what I'm playing with the campaign itself. Um, I wanted to. I want. Let me deviate slightly from this topic because I wanted to sure. to talk a bit more about some of the the content that's actually in the pages of the book. Um, mm-hmm. So as we so the bulk of the book is is taken up as sort of the conversion guide, um, mm-hmm. turning the one e adventures into 
you know, presenting 5e mechanics for the 1e adventure. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a lot of really cool stuff in this book as well. And I just wanted to highlight some of the things that uh, some of the additional content that you get in this book um, okay. for anybody who's uh, curious about buying it. Um, so we've got, so I'm looking through the appendix here. There's a monster reference guide that basically um, is sort of like, uh, this is where you find the various monsters that are presented in the book. Like this is where you find their um, their stat blocks, whether it's in one of a published book, whether it's in a an official published book. We've got um, Draconians um, from Tass's Pouches of Everything. Um, we've got, and then there's also some monsters that exist within this book. Mm -hmm. um, that are unique to Dragonlance or to just to this adventure. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of like, this is kind of a, 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 a monster, mini monster resource as in addition to a, a conversion guide. Cause there's a, there's a lot of cool monsters here at, at the end. Um, there's a section called, uh, and there's, there's an appendix called special creatures mm -hmm. that is basically like a, a little monster book. So we've got a, uh, a gully dwarf. We've got a black dragon hatchling. Fire shadows. Fire shadow spawn. The giant slug. That was probably my favorite one. I love the giant slug from the from the Slamori section. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and then a whole bunch of these different spectral minions that you could encounter in Zaxaroth. Um, so I think. Uh, oh, and the the Thaywar the Thaywar dwarves. Even the white stag. So this mm -hmm. is there's a lot of monsters in this book that you could use for your adventure. You could even take them and just use them separately in a Dragonlance, a different Dragonlance adventure or any other kind of adventure, um, as well as full stat blocks for different named characters like the Black, uh, the Shadow Dragon Whisper. We've got uh, the Forest Master has a complete stat block. Uh, Verminard has a stat block. Fumaster Toad has his own stat block, Boopoo, and then of course all of the um, the uh, the the player characters are you know they're fully statted out. Is so if you want to use them as PCs, you've got like full stats, but you can also use these stat blocks to run them as NPCs. Right. Oh, interestingly enough, you can. Um, I really uh, have experimented lately with using sidekicks. And I think that's a fun thing to do as well. To sidekicks presented in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Um, it was a lot of fun. Uh, all of the little NPCs that uh, attach themselves to the party along their journey. So uh, guys like, uh, well, Eben and Elliston and even... Uh, like uh, there are some that don't even appear anywhere else ever. Like I, I love uh, Nightshade, the mm -hmm. refugee. Um, he's he's one of my. I've I've come up with a complete persona, and I even have a character like my personal character that is based on Nightshade. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's. Um, I I really enjoy the sidekick rules. I think they're a lot of fun, and um, my current group that I'm running for right now uh, had a lot of fun. I ran Gold Moon and Riverwind as sidekicks uh, and gave the, I basically printed the sheet off of my original document for, for this book and just handed them to my players and said, okay, and I have uh, the descriptions printed on the back from the original first edition 
descriptions of them and mm-hmm. their their little personal stories and i gave them to a couple of different players to control as sidekicks to their own player player character um so i really enjoy the sidekick rules and and i've I, I think they work really well specifically for this campaign. I'm going to have to look look more into these sidekick rules because as I've never really probed that much into it, but now that now that I am hearing you talk about it, I'm I'm realizing well I'm kind of already doing this in one of my campaigns, so maybe I should look at the official the official rules for it. Yeah, it's a great way uh because they're they're less powerful, right, than a player character. But they're more powerful, I would say, than a typical NPC, and they, they're, you know, they level up with with the PCs. So, but they are statted in such a way that it doesn't. They they are there to help. You know, they are Robin to your Batman, and mm-hmm. they they are they're less about. They don't steal the focus of the story. I do have one thing that jumped out at me when I was going through these stat blocks and I want to I wanna I wanna discuss it because okay. this is this is a hot take if ever there was a hot take. <laughs> okay. Um we've got stats here for Raceland Majir, uh, everybody's yeah. favorite red robe wizard. Yeah. And you have Raceland as a third level wizard multiclassed into a second level warlock. Yeah, I did that. Tell me, tell me about this this heresy you've committed. I know, right? Um, <laughs> so, Raceland, uh, I don't, I don't know. If she, it, it's okay by now to spoil things, I suppose. I, with, I mean, it's we're story. coming up on forty years. I know, right? <laughs> uh, so, Raceland, when he takes his test of high sorcery, he fails, but and he's about to die, and the undying wizard. <laughs> Fistan Dantilus, uh makes a bargain with him and says, hey, I will uh, forge my soul with yours. Uh, you Basically, he's like, uh, give me a lift and to help preserve my consciousness, and I will make it so that you succeed. I'll give you power. And Raceland makes the deal. And I think in the original trilogy, it doesn't come out nearly as pronounced or as obviously as it does in, like, say, Dragons of the Dwarven Depths. It really uh, shines or, or becomes obvious in that, that there is another personality inside of Raceland. Um, so it only made sense that he was a, he was a warlock it, and the undying patron from... I believe uh, Xanathar's, is that where it comes from? Xanathar's Guide to Everything? It was the one mm. place where I steered a little left from the, yeah. I tried with all of the PCs to find something in the player's handbook that fit them mm-hmm. as far as their class and subclass. With Raceland, it needed the Undying Warlock Patron because uh, it's really awesome. Also, one really fun thing is that with in my mind Raceland takes the pact of the book um and because he's he's a magic user magic is his thing so uh when a, a warlock reaches third level and has the pact and takes the pact of the book they get a book of shadows mm-hmm. well at the end of 
Dragons of Despair, the very first module, when you advance to sixth level, in my mind, Raceland takes mm. a third level of Warlock. Yeah, yeah. And he receives his Book of Shadows. Whereas in the story, he finds the spell book of Fistandantilus in Zaxaroth. Yes. And that's yeah. kind of a side quest for Raceland. And it just fits so beautifully and perfectly. I, I couldn't, I, I don't know, once I got that idea, I could not just make Raceland an evoker <laughs> through the whole thing. It was not, it wasn't working. So, the, anyway, uh, that's why. The description of the Undying Warlock subclass in the, in the source book mentions Fist and Dantilus by name as one right. of the potential patrons. Yeah. Um, that, that's fun. It, it would explain, I mean, if Raceland's only got, you know, two spell slots, it'll explain why he's completely like exhausted and passes mm -hmm. out every time he casts magic missile in the sure. novels. <laughs> I, I mean, personally, if I were playing Raceland as with the pregenerate, I would take a third level of warlock and then I would go the rest of the way wizard. Yeah. For the mm -hmm. spell slots. That's just me. But I mean, I, and honestly, it, to be fair, I because I am an old school D and D guy. Like, like I said, I started with the basic expert set and, and all played all the way through AD and D. I'm not a hundred percent keen on warlocks as a personal choice. I don't. My imagination isn't one that like gets excited by the warlock, but in this case, it does. Um, so I don't know. Maybe there's something to advancing as a warlock that Raceling can do. That I'm not thinking of, but anyway. Um, let's jump uh, to another, uh, jump a little further. Oh, sorry. Well, that, that was the end. So that was the appendices we were looking through. Uh -huh. I'm actually going to jump a bit forward now. Um, so we've got some advice for uh, how to incorporate, or sort of like where the different ancestries stand um, at mm -hmm. this point in the adventure. Sort of, so how, like, uh, combined with advice on how you might incorporate them or whether you should resist incorporating them into the adventure, like the, like the mountain dwarves, you know, there's mm -hmm. mountain dwarves on Kryn, but they've been in isolation for 300 years. So for there to be a mountain dwarf outside of Thor Barden at this point in the story would be, you know, it, a tremendous aberration from the norm. Yeah, it would be, but um, it just requires, the dm and the player to sit down and work together if you really don't you want to play a mountain dwarf and you don't want to play a hill dwarf okay well let's let's sit down and talk about why why there's a mountain dwarf outside of thor barden yeah i did something similar with like um if a if a person wants to play like a goblin or a, a minotaur for example mm -hmm. i'll say um you can play i mean yes you can certainly play these classes they are uh, within the Dragonlance setting. However, your character will be viewed with suspicion by anybody who doesn't know them. Yeah. Um, and that is going to affect your experience playing in the campaign. So you can't, don't expect to go into a small village as a goblin and be treated well. Um, I'd be like, the, you're not going to get stoned to death immediately as soon as you step into the town, mm -hmm. but it's going to affect your, it's going to expect, affect your experience of the campaign because you're going to be constantly put into a position where people are expecting you to prove yourself or, you yeah. know, prove that you're, um, um, prove that you're not like the, the raiding and pillaging kind of goblin or the, 
the war making kind of minotaur and some people rightly so don't want that kind of experience and i think that's fine i try to couch it i think first edition you know they they were the the descriptions of of goblins or or the view of goblins is very one-sided and -hmm. i think in fifth edition we are more kind of take a more egalitarian kind of view if that's the right word of Mm -hmm. of each creature we're like okay so and i i tried to kind of phrase the relationship between uh humans and goblins as they goblins are and humans have been vying for the same for control of the same resources for hundreds and maybe even thousands of years and humans have pushed goblins and hobgoblins to the i guess the more desolate and less uh uh friendly regions of Ancelon. And so mm-hmm. uh so yeah they they are typically view each other as enemies. Mm-hmm. Um but then that I also kind of like to leave room for but that is circumstance rather than the nature of a goblin. Yeah. Um and and so if you want to play that that's fine but these this bigotry and uh you know hostility sense of hostility and um preconceived notions of what is a goblin still exist in the world mm-hmm. um and you just have to be prepared to deal with it i have a uh one of the players in my uh club school club campaign right now is playing a tiefling and she's been dealing with that uh, uh quite a bit when especially in solace um she's uh she's dealing with uh we did a short little campaign uh where they started out at at first level and i brought them up to fifth level um in solace they they did it little adventures with solace as their home base and uh they uh they they went from first to fifth level so in dealing with the actual npcs of solace she had to deal with a bit of you know for lack of a better term, racism toward the way she looks mm-hmm. <laughs> as a tiefling. And um, anyway, but, but that's a another role-playing opportunity. She was cool with it. I was cool with it. The table was cool with it. And so that's just a, uh, I know it's one of those hot button issues that you really need to know your players and, and make sure you're comf- that you're all comfortable with these themes coming out. Yeah, it's a good thing to to really have a serious discussion with at the beginning of a uh, the beginning of a of an adventure, beginning of a campaign. Make sure that everybody sort of understands and that everybody's comfortable, and then you can change course mm-hmm. as needed. Right. Because um, I mean, and and honestly, as much as we love Dragonlance and we love our Dragonlance canon, if if we were to like, if somebody. Was like I absolutely one hundred percent want to play a goblin, but I don't want to be mistreated by anybody at all. You can always right. be like, okay, well, all goblins right, so are you, fine. <laughs> you were orphaned, and you were actually raised in this community. Yeah, and people love you because you're kind of like the town mascot. Great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you can always you clever, mature DMs, uh, DMs that are open minded and, and open hearted can always find a way to make players happy. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk briefly about some of these player options that are in the book. We've got two 
uh, original subclasses. Yeah. And we've got um, a couple of really interesting backgrounds that I like because, well, I'll, I'll talk about why I like them in a minute. But tell us, we've got the cleric leadership domain. So, so tell us what's that, what that's about. Um, I needed a, a, a good subclass for Elliston. Essentially, that's what it is. I, I needed in converting Elliston over. I was like, okay, so Elliston is leader of the people. So I uh, and I was going through all of the cleric domains, and I couldn't find one. I could have, you know, light domain, of course, whatever. But I I needed something that specifically said, uh, you know, this is Paladine's chosen leader, and so I I. I put that subclass together for that purpose, specifically designed it for Elliston and um, was like, why not throw it in the book? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could also play this as a cleric of Tachesis. I think that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 I put language in there that <laughs> says, you know, these are, you know, the, the gods, Gillian, uh, Tachesis, Paladine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so that's kind of a, that's an interesting domain. Cause it's very like a, it's a very neutral kind of domain. It could really mm-hmm. go either way. Um, and then we have a fighter archetype called the Wild Runner. Tell us what that's about. That one, I okay. So, <laughs> uh, it's kind of the same story. I, in the 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 original PCs, I'm writing up the original PCs, and I'm trying to find a ver- not just variety, but like um, I don't. And if I were to run this strictly a one-to-one conversion with first edition. Every, like there you you have Tannis, Flint, Sturm, Caraman, uh Riverwind, right? And they're all playing some variety of martial character. Mm-hmm. Um Tannis, Sturm, Flint, uh Tannis, Sturm, Flint. Anyway. Riverwind. Yeah, but no, I'm Riverwind is uh, given to us <laughs> Every- in first edition as a ranger, but like these guys, there are so many fighters uh-huh. in these things, and then the player's handbook only has three subclasses, and I really wanted to narrow what players or characters needed or players needed extra, like extra source material. I wanted to keep it as close to the player's handbook as possible, and so rather than going outside of the player's handbook, I needed something uh and and also a fighter specifically doesn't necessarily match tannis Mm -hmm. um and and tannis i had always up to this point before i really started uh zeroing in on the book um tannis had always in in my mind been a ranger and uh, when i thought about playing tannis as a character and you know rangers in every edition but even fifth edition rangers have spells and tannis doesn't ever cast magic and so i always thought of his spell casting as kind of a mun like it it's not spell casting but it has the same effect as spell casting he's 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 a, a ranger who doesn't cast spells but he uses spell mechanics to explain what he's doing mm-hmm. um that doesn't translate well into a product of this type and so I'm like, okay, so if Tannis is a fighter, he is more of a wilderness fighter. He's a guy who is used to being out like a ranger in, in the woods hunting things. Uh, and so I needed a more woodsman type 
uh, fighter archetype for him. And I came up with this one. Yeah, this is really cool because this is like tied to Qualinesti as well. Mm -hmm. um, so it's would make sense that Tannis had this kind of wild runner training when he was when he was young. And so now he's a a fighter. He doesn't cast spells, but he has so many of these ranger like abilities. Yeah, and I had just uh, reread the Thompson and Cook Elven Nations trilogy too, mm -hmm. uh, and so that that was a big inspiration for this um, subclass because uh, the the Wild Runners or Origin were the basically the border troops around Sylvanesti during the Kinslayer Wars mm -hmm. under Kith Kanan's command, and when Kin Kith Kanan defected and moved and began the Nation of Qualanesti, it was elves half-elves and humans that followed him and were the original uh, people of Qualanesti. So um, it just made sense that the Wild Runner thing had ties to Qualanesti. I would love to play this subclass. You know who this reminds me of also a little bit is Aragorn. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, yep, uh, absolutely. You know, a, a ranger who doesn't cast spells. And it's that, a, I really yeah, think it, that's something 5e needs. So I think this is a great, a great subclass. It's a fighter, but it's a ranger who doesn't cast spells. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and then we have some original um, backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, Hand of Haven Guild Thief. So this is like um, a member of the Thieves Guild in Haven. Yeah. Um, we have the Seeker Acolyte. So if you're like a, a part of the Seeker religion, like one of the, you know, you are trained within the seeker religion or the seeker holy holy guardian so if you're playing as like the um more martial side of yeah, the seekers yeah yeah and then um this scaled society's merchant so this trade uh, a member of this trade organization mm -hmm. um i think this is really cool because i really like these backgrounds because um they're really great for tying your character to this region the sort of abyssinia region to be like you know here's here's uh, a background that's kind of centered in this location and explains what you've been doing, you know, your whole life mm -hmm. in this area. Can um, I make a confession to you and to our listeners right now? Yes. The Hand of Haven is so, I mean, it is such a, uh, uh, I'm inserting myself into, I think authors often will <laughs> say, this is a fun little creation that is from my own brain. And uh, the Hand of Haven is not a a thing that is published in any other. It is completely my creation. Um, there there is no published Thieves Guild in Haven, but um, there is I, now. I have a, a, one of my own characters from a long long ago. Uh, part of his story is that he started a Thieves Guild in Haven. Uh, and he called it the Hand of Haven, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, I needed a a, a faction really um, to kind of round out the you know it, you know fifth edition they kind of sticklers for the five factions that kind of encompass all character backgrounds, and so I I was like why don't I just pour in my own personal thieves guild, mm -hmm. um, yeah so that's that's it I mean it's com it's completely self centered that the hand of haven is in there but i think it serves a purpose <laughs> yeah and then we've got so then we have description of the descriptions of these different factions and so mm -hmm. uh you're you're incorporating the the faction rules that we also did in um tasselhoff's pouches of everything so rather than 
if you don't want to do like the, oh, I, I joined the Knights of Salamnia, you know, you get the Knights of Salamnia background. And so that gets you the feet or whatever. If you want to do the more like you, this is, this is really, these faction rules are great for like, if you want to do um, a campaign that's really like based around this particular faction or mm -hmm. have, you know, players who are heavily involved in their own factions that they can like take on these different uh, different quests for their different group and then sort of rise through the ranks as they go. Um, so we've got Knights of Salamnia, we have Mages of High Sorcery, Wizards of High Sorcery, um, and then we have the Hand of Haven, um, we have the Seekers, and we have the Scale Society. So this is a really good resource, um, even if you want to do just to run something in the, the sort of Abyssinia region of Dragonlance, even if it's not necessarily this exact Autumn Twilight campaign. Mm -hmm. There's a lot yeah, they're very useful. <clears throat> if you want to do more of like a, um, you know, like political intrigue, uh, local politics, and sort of how the different groups relate to one another in this area, mm -hmm. um, you can really sort of expand the original campaign, or you could even create your own campaign. Sure. This, yeah, this absolutely. Material. All right, Tim, well, that's all I've got for you. I think we've gone over everything that I really wanted to go through in this book. Um, it is, it's a really fun book. It's really well-written. Um, it's got a lot of fantastic art in it, fantastic cover art. Thank you, Elena, for being just incredible. Um, well, thank you so much for saying everybody that. everybody who worked on it. <laughs> can, can I tell you, too, that um, Shadow of the Black Rose is fantastic. Oh, thank if, you. If you're going to buy this, uh, take a look at Shadow of the Black Rose <laughs> as well. It is a fantastic, fun adventure. And I hope everybody checks that out, too. Thank you. Yes, well, they're both available on the DMs Guild right now. Um, mm -hmm. Both Dragonlance Autumn Twilight and Shadow of the Black Rose are both available on DMs Guild right now as we speak. So if you're interested, head on over, grab a copy. Grab a couple of copies. You can grab a copy of Tasselhaus Pouches of Everything revised while you're at it. Um, do you have any final things, anything we didn't go over that you'd like to say? Any final words or any uh, any conclusions you'd like uh, to offer our listeners? Um, only that uh, I know that there have been uh, you know certain criticisms of this campaign in the past, and I, I you know as far as uh, you know. It, it's it's an adventure on rails it you know it assumes that you're playing you know the original characters from the novels and it and it limits your creativity and i i just want to say it it really doesn't yeah it was originally designed for that but we also need to remember that um prior to this campaign um dungeons and dragons was largely uh it, it it was largely a war game, right? <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, that you, you played an individual character, but it was largely geared toward dungeon crawls. And I really, you know, Tracy and Laura Hickman, I, I really, really love them, but they brought story to Dungeons and Dragons. And I don't think we need to, to limit ourselves to the mindset that says, um, that, that we have to play the fiction. I think we, we should uh, open our minds and, and really think about, you know, what are the possibilities? This is a much larger world and um, we can, it, it, 
is ripe for creativity and improvisation and, and that sort of thing. And that's really more than anything else why I love this campaign so much. So thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about it. You're welcome. Well, thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. Um, it's been a lot of fun. And thank everybody. Uh, thank you, everybody out there for listening. Make sure to grab your copies on the DM skills right now. Follow us on Twitter at DL Nexus. Follow us. Uh, join us on the Facebook group. And also don't forget that we have a upcoming project that we are doing with Richard Knack, a, a, min- a, a source book, an adventure, uh, a short story about the minotaurs within Dragonlance. So be sure to keep an eye out for that because that will be coming up um, next year. So thank you, Tim. Thank you, everybody. And we will see you all next time. And until then, long live the Lance. Thank you, guys.